0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis from the beautiful game. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today is our Your Questions Answered podcast where we take All your comments from Twitter and answer them as best we can. Joining me as ever is the transfer windows transfer guru, Mr. Duncan Castles. Welcome, Duncan. I hope you're ready to answer some serious posers. Let's get stuck right into the big topics that you've been asking about. Going to start with Bafford Gem at Bafford Gem from Twitter. Uh, And they have asked, any truth about Harry Kane wanting to leave Spurs? And Duncan, that wasn't the only question we had. We also had one from King at True Nene. Any truth in the Kane to United rumours? Is there a chance Spurs might cash in on him while he seems to be declining and use that money to overhaul and rebuild their team? Well,
1: first thing to say, I'm not sure Harry Kane's on the decline. Um, although there will be a question mark about how well he recovers from this um, hamstring uh, rupture and surgery he's had, and which has put him out uh, of the season. It's a difficult injury, and you, you'll need to prove that he can, can come back as the same player. But more importantly is that Tottenham Hotspur, uh, Daniel Levy, Jose Mourinho have a serious problem here. Um My understanding is that Harry Kane is indeed considering his future. Um, I am told that that has yet to be communicated to Daniel Levy, but his concern here is whether Tottenham Hotspur is the right place to continue his career. He's going to turn 27 in July. Um, This is kind of the period in which if he is going to make a significant move, away from Tottenham, and that move is going to cost a lot of money because of what he's achieved in the game, the club he's trying to leave, the uh, chairman he, he's trying, he would try have to try to get to sell him. Um, he needs to do it at a period in which clubs are, are still prepared to put that kind of money on the table, and... If he leaves it for another year, he'll be turning 28. And 28 is kind of the the period in which clubs start asking question marks about that level of transfer, whether you you can go for 100 million plus transfer for a player for a 28-year-old. Particularly probably one with Kane where he's not a slow player, but he's not a, a super quick player either. And you'd be questioning whether as that little bit of pace drops off towards the end of his career, how much will that affect his ability to change games and, and score goals in the way he has done for season after season for Tottenham. So what I'm hearing from individuals close to Kane is that he his consideration here is, can I win trophies at Tottenham Hotspur? Is this club in a state in which I can achieve what I should be capable of achieving? Uh, given my status as a footballer, given my ability as, as a footballer. I want to be able to win Premier League titles, I want to be able to win European titles, I want to be able to win a trophy, a club trophy of some sort, which, of course, he has yet to do. Reached the Champions League final last season, but no trophy there. Um, great achievements under Mourinho Pochettino, season after season qualifying for the Champions League, but famously no silverware during that period. Um, I'm told that this is not a decision about money, although obviously in Kane's case, he can drastically increase his wages by moving to one of the super clubs. He is the best paid player at Tottenham. He has uh, pushed the Tottenham wage ceiling up a significant level. Um, His last contract renewal was in June 2018, um, he is contracted to the club until June 2024, so Daniel Levy has a lot of Daniel leverage here in the sense that um, it's a long contract he is on, and therefore if he feels he is forced into putting a price on Harry Kane, it's going to be a very high one. But I think the biggest problem from the information I'm hearing here is this: is it's not about... Um, rattling Daniel Levy's cage and um, saying, look, uh, my client, and in this case, Harry Kane is now primarily represented by his brother, Charlie. Um, It's not about rattling his cage and trying to get the salary up to a level um, that is on par with other top players in the Premier League. What I'm being told is the major consideration here is trophies, um, long-term future in the game if he wants to move to another league this is the time to do it Um, and that's the decision that's in front of him and obviously the decision is being affected by what has happened to Tottenham this season and that um, it has been their poorest season for several campaigns they look like they are going to have a real challenge to qualify for the Champions League Um, Part of that is due to circumstances and circumstances which include Harry Kane's own long-term injury and that of other players in the team. But um, also, if you um, ask Maurizio Pochettino about it, it'll be about a squad that has become imbalanced in certain areas, um, become tired, um, lost their ability and focus to work. In the level that they they were working under pochettino and that was why pochettino's argument was that the squad needed to be renewed with different players um, and younger players to put the energy back in the team Um, certainly kane will need to be convinced that if he stays at tottenham they will be back to the level quickly that they were at last season and in recent seasons in terms of being proper competitors. Now, are Manchester United then the obvious candidates for Kane to move to? Well, in one sense, yes, because Manchester United have long wanted to try and bring Harry Kane to Old Trafford. He's English. He has a, a high commercial status. captain of England. He takes a lot of boxes for the Ed Woodward, Richard Arnold um, commercial model which is so important and has been so important to a lot of their their transfer decisions down the line they need a center forward um and harry kane is the best traditional number nine in the english game so again obvious choice for them uh in that regard would manchester united be prepared to go to the kind of transfer fee level we're talking about and and i think We're talking as a minimum asking price, were Daniel Levy to be persuaded that that was the only resolution to this situation, which is, you know, we're going way down the the line here because, as as I understand, Kane's thoughts about leaving the club haven't even been directly communicated to Daniel Levy as yet. But we're talking, I think, a minimum of 150 million. Potentially, you could see Daniel Levy asking for 200 million given that last time he was in a situation like this, he put a price of £100 on Gareth Bale's head and then was caught out when Real Madrid actually called his bluff and said, OK, we are going to pay £100 for this player. You, You must now sell him to us. But the thinking from Harry Kane's side is that he wants to be in a competitive side, a side that can win Premier League, can win trophies, can compete in the Champions League. Now, you have to say that side at present isn't Manchester United. Now Manchester United might be able to persuade Harry Kane that they are on the right track and that they are going to make other additions to their team to um, put them into a position where they can compete at that level. But I think that's a it's a hard um, bit of co- persuasion, a hard bit of communication, a hard move to make. And also... If, I, I think once again, if you get to a situation in which Daniel Levy leaves himself open to resolving it by allowing the player to leave, then his preference would be to let Kane go to a foreign suitor rather than to go to Manchester United. Are there other options outside Manchester United in England? It doesn't seem that way at present. Certainly, Chelsea are in the market for another centre forward, but it seems that what they want is a player who can share time with Tammy Abraham. They've got a young, talented English centre forward who's, showed, who's shown that he can score goals in the Premier League. What they need is someone to assist them, not uh, another player who would expect to be a starter. Um, Liverpool have their attacking lineup and um, where they're looking. To add to it is Timo Werner, um, Manchester City. You don't. I, I'm not sure you see Harry Kane fitting into the profile of of player that Pep Guardiola would like. Um, and of course, the huge question over what Manchester City will be able to do in the transfer market. And of course, as it stands, they certainly wouldn't be able to offer him Champions League football. So, the question. Further down the line will be who is able to buy him if Harry Kane decides to pursue this line and to um, to make this summer one in which he goes to battle with Daniel Levy to be allowed to leave Tottenham. But whichever way it goes in that period, this is a problem that. Tottenham are going to have to solve and are going to have to deal with and I think in many ways it's an unexpected problem for them because Harry Kane has been very loyal to the club in the past he's been happy to stay in London he's been happy to stay with Tottenham he hasn't really pushed for a move he's been one of the easier players to give new contracts to at below market value um, and to retain as a central figure in the side and have his value increase um, as a general transfer fee Uh with no intention of selling the player. I think this is the first time where Levy is going to face a problem in having to persuade Kane that uh, that Tottenham's the right place for him to remain.
0: In terms of Tottenham Duncan, we've also got a couple of questions regarding Jose Mourinho's future and how things are going there. Uh, Dusa Shah at Dynamic Dusa has asked four out of four losses for Jose. Well, yes, four out of four losses for Jose Mourinho. That's exactly what's
1: happened. He's uh, with that uh, FA Cup defeat to Norwich on Wednesday night. It's um, four games. Uh, lost 1-0 to Leipzig in the Champions League, um, the first leg of that round of 16 game, and lost 2-1 to Chelsea uh, away in that um, game that was very important for their chances of, of finishing in the in the top four. This season, and then um, managed to lose a lead against Wolves and, and lose 3-2 at home. And I think uh, again a, a direct contender for a Champions League place. Um, also a game that didn't look doesn't look clever for Mourinho in the sense that he had um, a full week to prepare for the game, whereas Wolves were coming off a difficult Europa League tie. Um, always. Challenging conditions for most teams and and Wolves, as we know, have a a shallow squad. um, Don't have the ability to rotate that other top Premier League sides have got. Um, And then a goal up against Norwich in the FA Cup. Goalkeeping error uh, brings the game to 1-1. A game Tottenham really should have won. uh, Had better chances, but uh, Tim Cruel brought off some great saves and then they fail in uh, in the penalty shootout and go out. So I think that's, that is probably the worst run of Jose Mourinho's career. Um, I can't think of any other time he's had four consecutive defeats. Um, he now plays Burnley at uh, the weekend, um, away from home um, in the Premier League, and then the return match at um, RB Leipzig with, um, as he... Explains it himself. Limited options, limited tactical options. Um, a lot of players that he's been using, both out of position and um, and using effectively too much, not being able to rotate them, pushing them really hard from a physical and mental level, um, and having to come up with a solution against a, a really strong Leipzig side, who um, who are probably the team that that. Um, many sides wanted to avoid um, having it being drawn against in, in the Champions League. So there's no doubt he's under severe pressure now. Um, there's no doubt that uh, that his critics um, will use this uh, as uh, ammunition to put pressure on him. And it, it's happening at a time where there are question marks from the likes of Harry Kane about their future. Um, he's talked about recruitment for the summer and his plans for the summer and what he he said he wanted to do was um was not uh to make massive changes in the summer um first of all because that is not what we think we need secondly because of the profile of the club third because of what the market is um year after year it's more difficult so i'm not thinking of an overhaul of course we need to make our squad better that is obvious um He's been looking at targeted changes. He he keeps saying that he wants to get through to the summer and have the opportunity to see the players rested, get players like Sissoko, um, Kane, back to fitness, uh, young Min as well, uh, and have a pre-season to work with him and work with his ideas. Um, If this carries on, there'll be increasing pressure on on Daniel Levy to... um, Mm -hmm. Say that he made a mistake in appointing Mourinho and uh, and change for a different kind of coach. So yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a very difficult and challenging period for him, and it, it's I think hard to see how he can qualify this team for the Champions League now given the condition they're in, um, given the the demands that are being placed on players and the options he, he has you know we've seen Giovanni Lucelso, for example a player in his first season in the Premier League um, being used as a central midfielder when when his, his position is as a number 10 so he's having to be converted to a different position um, has played very well there but a different psychologically diff- difficult and uh, me- and physically difficult to do that in the Premier League. Um, And I think the cracks are showing, basically. And um, one thing we know about Mourinho is that he finds these circumstances hard to deal with um, in the sense that he doesn't take well to a bad set of results. He doesn't take well to being criticised over his results. He doesn't take well to people saying, oh, you should play a different way Um, in these matches you're setting up too negatively in the games Um, and generally when he comes under pressure like that um, further problems develop because he has a habit of saying things that um, antagonize people in these situations and you can certainly question whether sort of the repeated press conferences and where he explains why he he played in a certain way what the options are why he could only use certain players for um, Uh, in a a particular period of the game and in a particular way, um, probably has a negative effect on the players in that he's creating an atmosphere of lowered expectation and saying, for example, it's, it's impossible for him to put out a really strong team against both Burnley and Leipzig, and he'll have to juggle his resources appropriately for those two games. I think he's being honest there, but whether what effect that has on the team, you can argue about.
0: Okay, moving on to our transfer story now. We've had a number of questions. Uh, Ronnie S, Graham Hall, and at Ronald S five three eight o two five five eight, and he's asking about Jude Bellingham, Duncan, uh, and asking if the rumour that he's headed to Dortmund is true. Will he develop into a top player for England if he goes there? And your thoughts on those matters.
1: We broke a story back in January that Manchester United had offered 25 million for Jude Bellingham. Um, they wanted to take him in that window. They wanted to be a host of competitors for his signature. This is a player who, um, at 16 years of age, uh, has played 62% of championship minutes for Birmingham. He's played multiple positions in midfield and in the attack. Um, 31 championship appearances, four goals, three assists. Um, He is highly rated by a number of the people who are paid to get decisions right about signing young players. There are people talking about him as a generational talent, um, as the best player to come out of uh, English football's academy system for years, and that's why you're seeing as um, the manager of Birmingham City um, said in a, in a recent in- interview we're, we're aware of interest in him for the for the game with Middlesbrough half of Europe was there um, and he's not really exaggerating too much we also told you in, in January that Borussia Dortmund were one of the clubs who had been scouting him and were um, preparing an offer for the player um, the state of play with that I'm told is that Bellingham has likes what's on offer from Dortmund. Um, He sees what they've achieved in bringing young players into their squad. And uh, when you're talking about an English context, you obviously have Jadon Sancho as the prime example. Their willingness to promote those players into the first team um, rapidly and the impact it's had on their careers going forward. Um, I'm told that he is very close to agreeing personal terms with Borussia Dortmund. I'm also told that Birmingham have granted and had granted before these discussions permission to Dortmund to speak to the players. So this is done with the agreement of the, his current club. But my understanding is there hasn't been an agreement on transfer fee as yet with Dortmund, although that may come... Uh, in the coming days and of course if bellingham des- decides that dortmund is the place he wants to go it becomes much easier for them uh, to get that deal other clubs retain their interest manchester united are one of those of course they had two serious attempts to sign him in january um, bellingham and his father who is you know described as being a very sober and uh and careful influence in his career and did not want the player to move in january because he felt that uh remaining at birmingham was the best thing for him and has been prioritizing the right development path for the player um so that they rejected united's approaches Mm -hmm. Arsenal have also been scouting the player extensively. I'm told there have been offers from Leicester, Aston Villa, Chelsea and Everton as well, all of which had been rejected in January. Um, The best offer was £25 million in January. Now hearing that Birmingham think they can get £30 million for the player. In January, Birmingham's position was, we will sell him for the right price but we want to retain him for 18 months. Um, So some kind of structure in which he would be loaned back to the club, um, although that's technically slightly difficult to do because he hasn't signed a um, senior contract as yet. He's not 17 until June. But a, a structure to the deal in which Birmingham retained control of the player for a year. I don't know at this stage whether that's what they are trying to um, extract from Dortmund and whether Dortmund are prepared to offer that, and that's one of the reasons why Bellingham is is, uh, is interested in Dortmund and that he, he would have the opportunity to remain at Birmingham, develop there from, and then go to Dortmund with, uh, with a, a development path in place over there. But certainly it looks like um, we're going to get a conclusion to this before too long, and um, there is massive... Interest in this player, and it's going to be fascinating to see how he develops wherever he and his, his father decide to send him um, once this process uh, plays out.
0: Fascinating, and we're going to move on now to I Am Leaden's question. Um, it's at Louis underscore Farquhar, and he's talking about Liverpool uh, and their current form, Duncan. It's three losses in four. Is this a blip? What's going wrong at Anfield? If you're going to say something's
1: going wrong at Liverpool, you have to put it in the context of a historic season in which they've set a a range of records, which are still on course for the earliest Premier League uh, win and on course for uh, uh, breaking Manchester City's record of 100 points in the Premier League season. They've lost just one game. They've drawn just one game. They won 26 out of 28 Uh, they've only conceded 20 goals in 28 matches. So not too much has gone wrong and they are going to win the Premier League for the first time. They're going to win an English title for the first time in 30 years. If you present that to any Liverpool player, uh, member of staff, supporter, I think at the start of the season going to be the outcome. They would have said, thank you very much, we will take that. Don't care what happens in any of the other competitions. They're still in the Champions League, one of those three losses that um, I am Laddin uh, refers to um, was against Atletico uh, away, and they face a difficult tie against Atletico. And, and you know, as we said in the podcast we did with um, Guillaume Balague last week, I think if there's a team in Europe, you would pick to defend the goal leader Anfield and come up a, with a way to frustrate the team um, and frustrate Liverpool and, and, and put them out of the competition that they are the holders of then atletico and diego Simeone is a pretty good uh, option to select Um, that by no means means that they are going to do it i think if you listen to jürgen klopp he is saying that uh, it's mainly about small details in terms of why they have lost their last two games and lost them by a a total of five goals uh, to nil, losing 3 nil at Watford and being comprehensively beaten by Watford. I I think the the XG in that game was 2.7 to 0.2 under one calculation, so it wasn't uh, a deceptive result by any means. And then losing 2 nil to Chelsea in a game which was more open and in which Kepa's qualities and goals had a big part in, in Chelsea winning that game. And Klopp is talking about them having to get back, getting back to the things that they were doing right early in the season, and by just dropping off a little bit, you get these big changes in outcomes and matches, and and he needs to fix it. Um, and I think obviously that that's correct. They're not doing. The things, all of the things they were doing well at the start of the season. But I think there's other elements here. They've had a very demanding schedule. They had to play the Club World Cup, which they won um, in extra time against Flamengo, so they had those extra games thrown into their schedule. They've they've had this. They haven't had the proper psychological pressure of a Premier League uh, champions uh, run in, um, in the sense that this title's been decided. In December, effectively, that's when Pep Guardiola first said me didn't think City could win it and basically admitted defeat. So they knew they were going to win the title, but the pressure that's been placed on them is about um, records and uh, the idea that they might become an invincible team. Uh, the idea that was being openly discussed by a large number of their supporters that this wasn't just the best team in the Premier League. Now it was the best team in English football history off the back of what they're doing. And that, I think, is significant additional pressure on them. You have to look at the run in which they had, And we've said this in the podcast before, that 28, um, sorry, 26 wins from 28 games flatters the team. The team is exceptional. It is definitely one of the, the, the greatest performances we've seen in the Premier League, but they've had a lot of marginal wins a lot more marginal wins than Manchester City had in their um, record-breaking season. Um, They've had some good fortune in terms of uh, refereeing decisions uh, and VAR decisions going in their favour. So they, they really should have lost before this and they really shouldn't have had 26 wins in terms of absolute output in games. But they did manage to achieve them. The point here is if you take the context, then perhaps it's not surprising that when they, they do trip up in one game, more errors come in after that, and, uh, and the sort of reality that they're not quite as good as they've been painted becomes evident. We are also talking about a Premier League season in which there are so many teams competing for the fourth place on extremely low points totals, um, which tells you about the weakness. Of the competition, so I think that that's also um, a factor here, and, and probably not probably one of the reasons why it was it's in Champions League competition that they've had the biggest problems. So Napoli beat them in the group stages. Napoli also drew with them in the group stages, and Atletico beat them, and even um, Salzburg gave them a good a very good run in one of those uh, Champions League matches. And I think also what you get. And this is a natural process in football. Is people study the way a team plays. One of the reasons Liverpool have done so well is they they have these two very good attacking fullbacks who Klopp has designed the system in which they, those attacking fullbacks are used, and Trent a- Alexander-Arnold in particular are used as playmakers. So they've created a huge number of assists between the two of them, and have been very important in making chances and scoring goals for Liverpool. People watch that and they work out a way to play against it. And that's what Watford did. Um, We had Kevin Affleck um, on at the start of the week talking about Watford's game plan for that match, um, why they felt they had a very good opportunity to get something against Liverpool and why they targeted those fullbacks as a weakness. Because they felt that if they... Immediately attacked the space behind the fullbacks as soon as they got the ball, they could take advantage of those fullbacks being pushed so far up the field, which is kind of an inevitable consequence of the way Klopp wants them to play, which on balance has been brilliantly effective for the team. But if you've got fast forwards and you've got midfielders and defenders capable of putting the ball onto those fast forwards' feet, in space behind the full-backs, then you will create chances against this Liverpool team, as Watford did. Watford took them, they won the game, they've shown a way to play against Liverpool. And then the question becomes how many other teams can do that? And if they can, is it enough to to win sufficient matches against them? And then can Klopp come up with a, an alternative way of playing? in those particular games which is as effective as the standard way of playing so it's little things and in the grand scale of things it's not very important because they are going to win the Premier League they are going to be the best team in the country they are the best team in the country they're currently the best team in Europe the bigger question I think is whether they can retain that status as European champions I think that's the real test here for Liverpool for the remainder of this season
0: Well, we've got a rather pertinent question from Ed McDuffrey via Facebook, especially given we're both Scottish, Duncan, and always keep an eye on the national team. This little lad for Chelsea, Billy Gilmore, I heard them say he is Scottish. Can anyone else pinch him? He's a great player.
1: Yeah, well, Ed, um, who, uh, who's a Liverpool supporter and a big supporter of the podcast, was obviously watching Gilmore um, play his part in that 2-0 victory FA Cup victory over Liverpool this week, and like any um, patriotic Scot, uh, sees a, a Scottish player doing well at that level and thinks, "Oh, we've finally got someone who can who can do something at international level." And also, like any Scot, looks for the the, um, the dark lining and wonders whether uh, the English or anyone else could could steal him away in the in the kind of fashion England have done with Jack Grealish and and are focusing on doing with any players they see who have um, uh, potential English heritage. Um, but I'm going to turn this one over to you, Johnny, because um, Rangers is where Billy Gilmore came from, and he's a player you know a lot about. Um, so I'm going to switch from uh, the, the question-answer to the questioner here and, and tell me if you think uh, we are at any risk of losing this talent. And, um how he ended up at Chelsea and uh, and where you think his career can go?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think there's any chance. Uh, Billy Gilmore was as Scottish as they come. He's brought up in Ardrossan and I just can't see a situation. He's a patriotic Scotsman who's played through all the youth rankings. He first turned out for the under-21s when he was 16. That was a major jump up for him. He's He's been a major part of the planning for the future at the SFA, the Scottish Football Association. So I just... Can't see that happening. It's just unthinkable that the lad would choose to play for England. In terms of this player, he has been a story in Scotland for quite a number of years now. Uh, I see that the the English media is now on the back of this performance doing a lot of stories about where he's come from and who he is. But in Scotland, we've been reporting on him since 2015 on the basis that there were rumours coming out of Rangers training ground that there's this young lad who was as Duncan uh, the word Duncan used for Jude Bellingham that he was a generational talent in there and a guy that could come into the Rangers first team at a very young age as early as 2016 there were people in the Rangers camp saying that he would be destined to play for the first team before he was 17 Uh, he was only 14 at the time this is Unheard of, really, in Scotland. We haven't had too many players in the last 30 years that have come through and made such an impact at a young age. And and Billy Gilmore was doing that. He was attracting interest from all the big names. Uh, Barcelona were looking at him, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Arsenal. and, And most of the focus did come from Chelsea. There was a huge amount of interest in taking him down south. Now, Billy Gilmore grew up as a Rangers fan has also been brought up in the Premier League era. So I think the glamour and the glitz and the the, the opportunity to test himself uh, at the very highest level really did appeal to him.
1: And Pedro the money, Casci-
0: presumably. I, well, and the money. That's another thing now. I think getting on to that, I think there was a, an offer made by Chelsea that, that essentially sorted Rangers out for a player who was 16. I think it was about £500,000. But with add-ons, now... As an aside from this, the, the deal that was struck to bring um, Gilmore to Chelsea uh, was struck when he was 15. Uh, the, the deal was made official when he became 16 in the summer, but it was it was struck uh, when he was still 15. And uh, Rangers were actually fined uh, £7,800 um, because it was decreed by FIFA that they entered into an illegal third-party agreement on that transfer. Essentially, he was still a Rangers player, but he wasn't allowed to leave to anyone other than Chelsea as part of this agreement, which got them a slap on the wrist, Rangers, but more importantly, I think, was a was a factor in Chelsea's transfer ban. So there were significant hurdles that Chelsea had to jump over to make this transfer happen and to get it through. And clearly, they had a, a strong feeling that they were, they were snapping up someone who was a bit different. Now, the feeling in Scotland at the time, Duncan, was very much why is he making this move? We've seen so many young players go down there to England um, and they, they don't get that first-team experience. There's, there's a lot made of the 100 first-team games before you're 19 in Scotland and making sure you get those under your belt. But I think Gilmore has been the exception to the rule and to, to get into the first team at Chelsea at 18 and to perform like that against such a an accomplished midfielder like Fabinho shows that he, he did make the right choice for his own development. I mean he he's been impressing all the way through his time at the club. The, the moment where he really came to into his own was in 2018 at the Toulon under 21s tournament where Scotland made a semi-final. Again, <laughs> very very unusual. <laughs> um, but he was uh, regarded as a, a very important factor in that team and you know he, he's only 16 playing at under 21 level. And uh, he was actually awarded the Revelation of the Tournament Award, which is essentially the, the sort of young player of the tournament. As an aside to this, 18 or not, uh, I think he's going to be named in the next Scotland squad anyway. Now, Steve Clark was supposed to attend the nation's League draw on Monday, but but didn't because I think the coronavirus was an issue. Um, the fact that this is obviously blowing up now and people are being very responsible about their, their response to it. But I think also Steve Clark, being a man with contacts in Chelsea got a hat tip that, that Billy Gilmore would start the match and I think he prioritised rather to get down and, and see that and, and I think uh, there's not a Scotsman that would say that that was a bad decision given what we saw. This sort of Scottish Xavi at the base of the midfield, metronomic presence, controlling the tempo of a game in a way that you very rarely see. Uh, It was extremely impressive.
1: So I saw some comments from Gilmore uh, talking about Harry Maguire playing against Harry Maguire in the League Cup earlier in the season and saying that Maguire was gripping him by the throat. Um, Do do we know if that was an attempt to persuade him to change nationality and join Maguire (laughs) in the England team?
0: I think you'll need to do more than that, to be honest. Uh, I think uh, I don't know if this is just wishful thinking on my part, Duncan, but um, I, I, I think Scotland have more concerns with another talent. There's a there's a kid called Karamoko Dembele who plays for Celtic, who is. Perhaps not creating quite this, the, the same amount of heat as Billy Gilmour, but certainly a lot of the big clubs uh, in Europe have been interested in him. He's now 17 and has been carefully nurtured by Celtic. I think he made his debut when he was 16 for the club uh, towards the end of last season. And I think he is much more likely to to depart to play for England, certainly, than than Billy Gilmour is, because he has played for the, the England uh, under-15s, under-16s, etc. And, and has certainly been getting sniffed around quite significantly by the English national teams. But I don't, I don't, I don't have the same concerns about Billy Gilmer. Thieving Sassanas can never trust him. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of player himself, Duncan, he's just recently signed a four-year deal. What what kind of salary is he going to be on now? I mean, he's a, he's a young talent um, who's exploded onto the scene. But, but is he going to be tied down for the long term and on a very good deal at Chelsea? Well, obviously
1: part of the reason why Chelsea have such a, a large number of talents in their academy is that they, they have for years spent huge amounts of money getting those players to the club. And, and that primarily has been in the shape of um, wage promises to the players. Uh, some type, obviously you can't give players professional contracts until uh, a certain age. So quite often they have to um, delay With a promise to pay them certain amounts of money once they reach the age in which they can give them those contracts, money is uh, pushed to the parents. Um, Parents are provided with jobs. We've seen clubs giving um, players' parents scouting positions at the club as a a means of of having an excuse and a reason to give money to the family. Um, You see clubs buying houses for the parents of promising kids. What I'm told is that upgrade that, that Gilmore signed um, in September is for pays him around £12,000 per week, but it includes um, automatic step-ups each year and also step-ups when he's made a certain number of appearances for the team. So it's um, significant money, but by no means... At the top end of the salaries that are paid to um, similar talents of similar ages so they you know Chelsea have got him if he turns out to be the player that he looks like he can be they got him at in the in the marketplace and it's a it's definitely a bubbling marketplace for um, young academy players they got him a, a reasonable price you could say
0: Absolutely. Now we've got a question from the chosen one at 007 underscore mufc. Why do referees always get it wrong against United and VAR has to come in and give the correct decision? Well, this
1: this question made me chuckle a bit. Um, I think it comes off the back of something we talked about in Monday's podcast, which was the uh, the VAR overturn in Manchester United's favour at the end of the Everton game. Um, where John Moss came in and corrected the decision of Chris Cavanagh and his linesman um, to allow Dominic Calvert-Lewin's deflected shot off Harry Maguire in the last minute of the match, which should have given Everton almost certainly the win. Um, And PGO MOL defended that decision, saying that uh, uh, Sigurdsson had been sitting in the line of vision of um, of David De Gea, and had made an obvious move that impacted on his ability to play the ball. We went through in the podcast why that doesn't actually adhere to the, the laws as um, written, um, and seemed like another case of PGMOL giving post hoc explanations for controversial VAR decisions that their, their officials had made, pointed out that uh, there was a split between referees in terms of whether that decision was right or not. You have someone as prominent as Mark Klattenberg, who's obviously um, refereed a Champions League final in a, a European Championship final. Not one of my favourite referees, but very prominent referee writing in a paper column saying that the goal should have stood. Um, which, of course, tells you that it wasn't a clear and obvious error. If there's that degree of debate between referees over the interpretation of the laws, Um, it wasn't a clear and obvious error. Therefore, Moss, by the Premier League's high bar, should have left it alone um, as as a decision that uh, Kavanaugh and his linesmen were entitled to have their subjective opinion. It was an unusual offside decision in that it showed that offside is not always an objective uh, Law and there are subjective elements in it. And and obviously there are when you're talking about clearly obstructing line of vision and um, affecting a player's ability to play the ball. That's always going to be a subjective decision, particularly in an instance where a player like Sigurdsson is not in contact with De Gea and did not touch the ball himself. Um, We also mentioned that Manchester United had the most VAR overturns in their favour in the Premier League. So they've had six overturns of subjective decisions, and this is the important thing here, subjective decisions rather than objective decisions like most offside overturns and um, overturns of of goals where a handball has been involved, which is essentially an objective decision under the the ludicrous Schrödinger's handball law that we talked about being a problem um, before even came in last summer and which has demonstrated this itself to be a huge problem for the Premier League and football in general this season. So Manchester United have had six of those in their favour. Um, they've had zero uh, overturns of subjective decisions that went against them so they've got no the lowest level of any Premier League team in terms of those going against them and the most um, in terms of those going in favour of them which I argue is evidence that of something we talked about being a problem in VAR from the very start is that it has a tendency to favour bigger teams. Um, I think this is a subconscious thing. It's, we, we know that referees are biased towards home sides uh, in general, but uh, to the stronger team in particular, the scientific evidence of this, um, if you allow two sets of subjective decision making, which is what VAR as a system allows, then you've got a higher likelihood that they will find a flaw in a goal for the smaller team. And we've seen that in the Champions League, particularly with Real Madrid. Um, Games against Ajax in the Champions League last season being a very significant example. Um, Game against Club Brugge this season, um, where VAR intervened clearly incorrectly to help Real Madrid in the situation where they looked like they were going to lose the game. This happens. The response from a number of Manchester United fans has been, this is not evidence that um, we have been fortunate with VAR. Um, it's evidence that the referees uh, are poor or um, biased against Manchester United, and VAR has had to come in and correct uh, more decisions in Manchester United's case because the referees are um, have a problem with us in one way or another, um, which I think is just... Um, Quite amusing, and it's evidence of what you see with most football fans. And it's kind of probably the one universal law in football is that the the correct decision in the football field is the one that favours your team. Um, and there aren't that many people who will uh, who will say, uh, hand and heart, that their team got lucky in a particular situation.
0: Okay, we've got a question now from Mohammed Al moman uh, at. M. Underscore Almoman, how long till we know if fifth place will get Champions League football and how would the timeline look for the City case?
1: This is, this is a very important question and one that um, obviously a number of Premier League clubs will be asking. It's down in the first part to Manchester City. So Manchester City have a choice here. They can accept the ban. Um, in the sense that they will not contest the ban for next season and let let Cass decide on the merits of the case without asking for a stay of the ban. That's one option for them. It's an option they're extremely unlikely to take, given all the stuff we've reported on the transfer window and that they've told their players that they will have this overturned, that they will not be found guilty once Cass uh, and potentially other courts look at it and that the players will be playing Champions League football next season and they've assured their players of that. So the process is that Manchester City will go to Cass and ask for the ban to be stayed while um, Cass are examining the case. Now Cass made a statement about um, having received their appeal from Manchester City last week and saying that it was not possible from their point of view to say when the matter would be finally resolved. So we know there's a lot of money being thrown at this this legal challenge. We know that Manchester City will um, use as many arguments as, as they possibly can to try and get themselves off the hook here. Um, therefore, it will probably come down to this. Manchester City asked for a stay of the ban. UEFA will then be asked whether they're happy with the ban being stayed. Um, if UEFA say they are not happy with the ban being stayed, then CAS will decide whether it uh, remains in place while the case is being examined by, by CAS, or more likely that it gets put in abeyance until CAS have resolved the matter. Um, if it's the second option, I think it's very unlikely we will know if fifth place gets Champions League football before the season ends. Um, and it's probably difficult to see it knowing before um, the next season starts, which means the pragmatic approach here would be forecast to do what they've done in in other similar cases, in in instances where there have been transfer window bans, for example, and, and clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona have challenged transfer window bans, and that is to say, well, the transfer window ban is suspended until we've um, decided on the matter. Once we've decided on the matter, we will say how long that transfer window ban should be. But in the meantime, you can go ahead and uh, and make um, sign players as you like.
0: OK, and the final question now is from Kimbu United at Davkim. How do transfers and agreement work outside the transfer window?
1: Well it's pretty much the same way as they do inside the transfer window. Um, there's nothing to stop clubs from agreeing the transfer fee um, on February the 1st for a deal to happen in the following summer or or potentially in in a, a year and a half s time. And we've been talking in this podcast about Jude Bellingham. So should Borussia Dortmund say to Birmingham City, we will do the deal on the basis that you retain um, the player for another season and we take him uh, for the the 2021-22 season, they can have the paperwork all done with both the player and with the club, um, making it uh, clear that, uh, that they will sign the player from Birmingham City for a set fee just as they would do in a, in a normal window, all, all the contracts signed, and then they're sent um, to FIFA. In this case, um, the FA would obviously be involved and the Bundesliga would be involved um, to have the registrations exchanged at the appropriate moment. Um, and as long as the club has given permission uh, for the player to speak with um, the, the potential buying club, the player can negotiate um, salary terms, conditions under which he plays, bonuses, etc., uh, and then have that in place to be signed as and when um, a full agreement is made with the club. So the, there's in these in these instances where the where the clubs are happy to do deals club to club, there's nothing stopping. Um, transfer agreements being put in place at any time during the season. Of course, you can't actually transfer the player until um, until the windows open. Um, it, we've got you know very prominent examples in the case of Bayern Munich uh, last season, who signed Lucas Hernandez uh, and Benjamin Pavard. Um, to France internationals for very significant transfer fees. In Lucas Hernandez's case, it was an 18 mil, €80 million euro transfer fee during um, the season, quite early on in the season, and outside the transfer window for the deals to be done in the summer. So, so it's a pretty standard process, and, and part of the planning of clubs who, like Bayern Munich or like Borussia Dortmund, Um, try and get things done rapidly, try and get them done before their competitors and get deals in place to give themselves a competitive advantage
0: down the line. Okay, fascinating insight there from Mr. Castles, but now we move on to my favourite section of the podcast, which is, of course, the donkeys. Now, there is only one option for the Donkeys this week, which if any of you have been on social media this over the last 24 hours, you will be perfectly aware of what we're going to do. It's going to be the Eric Dyer Award for player-fan participation. Eric Dyer, basically furious at the end of Tottenham's uh, defeat to Norwich and FA Cup, runs up to the side of the hoardings, uh, leaps over them, runs into the crowd to remonstrate and confront a supporter. Now, there's all sorts of rumours and conjecture flying about of what caused this mild-mannered midfielder to take such an aggressive stance, but we're not going to get into that but we're just going to uh, touch on the other incidents that might come close although I can't really, to be honest there's, there's not many that come close to that Duncan, it was quite spectacular wasn't it? Uh,
1: yes it was um, and you know we do have a defence from a partial defence from Jose Mourinho that, is, uh, that Dyer's uh, brother was involved in that there was um some uh, unsavoury words said during the game, and uh, Dyer took it into his own uh, hands to sort out post-match. But yeah, let's let's go through your nominees. Open that envelope up and, and tell okay. us who I've got to choose from.
0: Ian McGarry did send the envelopes through, so I've got them here. So don't worry about that. So that's that <laughs> opened up. Um, so the first nominee, who else but Mr. Eric Cantona? He had his mad moment when at Sellhouse Hurst Park he was uh, getting abused by a fan in the crowd and did his infamous kung fu kick square in the face of said fan. It was a moment of sheer madness and also, of course, brought about the infamous quote about the seagulls following the trawler for the sardines, which has got to be the, the greatest footballer quote of all time. The second nominee is Jamie Carragher for donating his saliva to a teenage Manchester United fan. And the third is Gary Neville, a friend of the podcast, of course, with an open invitation still to come on for running down the touchline to celebrate Manchester United's winning goal against City while pretending to warm up as a sub, even though all three substitutes had indeed been used. So, Duncan, Mr Cantona, Mr Carragher or Mr Neville? Uh, Look, Gary Neville,
1: very amusing, um, deserves plaudits, But this is such a strong field here. I think Jamie Carragher already has one of these awards for that particular uh, moment of uh, fan participation, which he somehow managed to survive uh, and uh, and return to Sky Sports as one of their frontline pundits alongside aforementioned Gary Neville. But um, while you don't want to... uh, in any way um, approve of what Eric Cantona done. If, you're, if we're talking player-fan participation, then that is the clear and outright winner, uh, one of the, the most memorable incidents in Premier League football history. And as you say, um, ended with some... Uh, some- an amazing press conference and some amazing comments from said Cantona. And he himself also uh, had that uh, miraculous recovery to full status in the English game after his uh, particular um, moment of supporter involvement. So uh, Eric Cantona wins his first donkey for uh, your Eric Dyer award for player
0: fan participation. I think there's another one that we should be, possibly should have put in here, Duncan, I'm just going to regale you with it. It was a a, a highly, um, well, I wouldn't say dubious, of course, because if Brendan Rodgers said it, I'm sure it's true. But um, certainly there was a certain uh, lifting of the eyebrow when uh, Brendan made these comments. Um, he's talking about his time in Glasgow uh, when he was Celtic manager and said that he was in the Clyde Tunnel when he noticed that a, a Rangers fan decked out in, in red, white and blue got out of his car when they were sort of stopped in traffic and tapped on his window. And the Rangers fan leaned in and said, Hi, I just wanted to say thank you for coming up to Scottish football. I'm a Rangers supporter (laughs) and you're a breath of fresh air up here. I
1: thought thought you were going to regale us with the Brendan Rodgers smelling the mints um, story there when you were talking about footballer (laughs) fan participation, but actually you did... um, give us a story when i think we can all smell the (laughs) mints
0: well that's terrific duncan we're going to call it a day there of course this is the thinking fans football podcast and we thank you for listening if you've really enjoyed it and we hope you have please go on to itunes and give us a five-star review this helps it get to as many listeners as possible We are all over social media with this podcast, so you can continue the debate on a number of platforms, not least on Twitter, where you can find me at Johnny R. McFarlane. You can find Duncan at Duncan Castles. You can also find us on Instagram. Duncan is Duncan.Castles on Instagram. We've also got our own Transfer Podcast Twitter account, at Transfer Podcast, and I think it's the same on facebook it's at transfer podcast so anywhere you use for your social media you can find us and discuss the issues that we've raised in the podcast we will be back on monday with another episode for you but until then thanks for listening